Hello and welcome to Moving Iron Podcast. This edition of the Moving Iron Podcast is brought to you by these great sponsors. Axon started out of a passion for keeping agriculture moving. Imagine having 100 years of tire and wheel knowledge in your back pocket the next time you sell a piece of ag equipment. To find more or become an Axon dealer, please visit axontire.com. This podcast is also brought to you by Valley Transportation. Valley Transportation has been hauling ag and construction equipment across the country for the past 33 years. Call Parker at 800-657-4910 or go to valleytransinc.com for all your trucking needs. At Valley Transportation, our goal is to help you reach yours. This podcast is also brought to you by AgDirect. No matter how you buy your ag equipment from a dealer, auction, or a private party, AgDirect can help you finance it. You can even apply online at agdirect.com. Learn more about your financing options at agdirect.com. Moving iron in the 21st century. Hardworking people working hard for you and me. Moving iron time and time again. Through the years you'll find us here. Moving Iron. Hello and welcome to Moving Iron Podcast number 270. This edition of the Moving Iron Podcast is brought to you by Axon Tire, helping dealers move more iron for the past 100 years. For more information, go to axontire.com. If you would like to get a mouse pad with all kinds of resources on it having to do with tire tips, go to axontiretips.com, scroll down to the bottom, fill out a uh, form, and they'll send you two of those in the mail. But before you scroll down, read some of those case studies I have about compaction. There's a lot of interesting stuff there. So check that out. Valley Transportation has been hauling ag and construction equipment across the country for the past 33 years. Call Parker at 800-657-4910 for all your trucking needs. Valley Transportation, our goal is to help you reach yours. No matter how you buy ag equipment from a dealer, an auction, or a private party, AgDirect can help you finance it. You can even apply online at agdirect.com. From what, learn about all your financing options at agdirect.com. And finally, TractorZoom has access to over $20 billion worth of heavy equipment machinery sales data. Tra- TractorZoom's Iron Comps is the industry's trusted solution for transparent heavy equipment values and auctionable pricing. All right, so this is uh, Moving Iron Podcast number 270, and I have a, I guess you guys probably aren't very familiar with Sean Haggett. He's, not on the, he's never been on the podcast before, so... Uh, Sean is on twice a week talking about what's going on in the markets, but Sean does a lot of stuff with weather, weather, weather modeling that will give you a, a kind of a, a good idea of where he thinks the market's going to go from, from his perspective. And, and, um, his weather marketing has been, uh, uh, his weather models anyway, they've, they've been, a they're, they're very I would say contrarian to, to what you hear out in the marketplace, Sean, is that a fair statement? Very contrarian. You know, we typically are talking about things that the models are saying the exact opposite. And while no one's perfect and we don't claim that we get everything perfect on the bigger picture items, so we've been, our, our track record has been excellent and we've made some really, really contrarian weather calls, which of course drives agricultural prices either up or down significantly depending on what it is that's going on with the weather. And so we think we're on to something with the sun, the planetary forces, the sea surface temperatures. We think we're on to something here that uh, really is uh, very helpful uh, to those involved in agriculture. And I think uh, especially going forward into this, you know, next 20 years, uh, you know, we think this is going to be an extremely important time to get more understanding of these cycles and why this weather volatility is going to continue and how to manage it because if you manage it correctly, it could be extremely profitable on the farm, manage it incorrectly, and it could be very painful. And so that's, you know, our mission in life is to try to pr- present <clears throat> good advice to our agricultural customers using the, some of this work so that they can get a better handle on it. And in some way, you know, your show and, and, and others are, you know, hopefully we can get this out and, and people can begin following what we, what did we say a year ago? What did I say two years ago? And what happened and start getting confidence and some of these forecasts that we're putting out, it's all data-based. It's not like I'm making up, you know, witchcraft or Ouija board uh, economics. I mean, th- this is all supported information that um, anyone can actually go out and find themselves. I just spent my whole life aggregating it and putting it into a uh, into a form that people can utilize instead of them having to spend their life doing what I just did. <laughs> so, 
Well, we appreciate that, Sean. So, um, so last year, moving on to 2021, you uh, gave your presentation. You started talking about, it, about two things that really popped up. One was, and these are things we're going to hit on here. Um, one was the current solar cycle and how does this solar cycle compare to the ones we've seen in the past. And secondly, was the transition from El Nino to La Nina. And then with a, with a weakening solar cycle, how that was going to have a, a major effect on the weather as we transitioned in and out of that. So why don't we start with... Um, why don't we start with this? Let's start with what the current solar cycle is and what you're seeing there. And is it on track as to what you talked about here on the show? I mean, last time we did one of these shows was probably six months ago, nine months ago, something like that. And, you know, we, we talked about the solar cycle where we're out there and, and what we were heading into. So we've headed into this new solar cycle. So what are we seeing right now, Sean? Well, just remember that, that remind everyone a grand solar cycle minimum is a period of 40 or 50 years where the amplitude of this 11-year solar cycle is, is at least half of normal, meaning that we're getting less sunspots, less solar radiation in the atmosphere. Um, our forecast had been that this, that we already had that, the last solar cycle, solar cycle 24. Our forecast was that solar cycle 25 would pretty much match solar cycle 24, meaning that we would have a similar half peak. Um, and the way the cycle works is if you take the absolute trough of the 11 year solar cycle, Casey, and you move two and a half years ahead on that solar cycle, you pretty much have a pretty good boundary of your initial peak of that solar cycle, meaning there's not gonna be much variation wherever you are at, at two and a half years in. Um, you, it goes through some kind of a topping pattern over a couple of years and then it roll, runs back down again. So we're at, June is two and a half years from the absolute trough. So we have a very good read on where are we now, because this is pretty much going to set our boundary for the peak. And we're pretty much mimicking almost exactly solar cycle 24. I mean, we're going to have a peak very, very similar in amplitude, which, which is confirming an extended period of below normal sunspot activity and solar radiation hitting the atmosphere. And why that's important, just to kind of remind those that maybe don't remember the last, uh, podcast, or, or I've never heard this before, is that when you have less solar radiation hitting the atmosphere, you have cool air in the outer atmosphere and it and cool air shrinks and it compresses the atmosphere. And when you compress the atmosphere, you take these rubber bands called the jet stream and you compress the jet stream and you change this jet stream from a zonal flow like this, like a sine wave to a meridional flow, which is this north to south undulating amplitude kind of upper airflow pattern. And that creates tremendous increase in weather volatility, excessive flooding, excessive drought, excessive cold, excessive heat, just everything's excessive. You know, everything's beyond normal. Everything's more than we're, than we've seen before. And you know, how many weather events, Casey, have we seen this? Like, we just haven't seen that before. We haven't seen that before. That's really unusual. That's really out of the box. I mean, that's the weather pattern we're in and, and weather volatility is not good for producing agriculture. It's just not good. When you have those kinds of significant weather anomaly events, that's not the kind of conditions that help produce record crops, big crops, increasing yields. Uh, it tends to keep clipping the crop, clipping the crop, clipping the crop. And quite frankly, if you look at wheat yields, corn yields, and soybean yields globally, since 2019, when our definition of the grand solar began, we've seen yields flat to down uh, since that point. And prior to that point, they were going straight up. Now, obviously, someone will say, well, you know, Sean, three years don't make a trend and we can go right back to it. Now, I understand that. But, but what I'm getting at is that we, we're seeing the effects of this weather volatility depress production. And the way grand solar cycles operate, they tend to get more severe as time goes on. They're cumulative in nature. So, so this process is going to get more adverse, more volatile, um, and, 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 the, um, and the ultimate takeaway, um, and what really, really, beyond the weather volatility that really drives lower production, is that you have longer winters. So we experienced a very late ending winter this year, Casey, yeah. um, as, as it has been our forecast. Um, and that created havoc with planting, delayed planting, replantings, 
prevent plant. You know, we're going to get this acreage report out a week from now, and we're going to find out exactly how those. But but we had a very late uh, ending winter. We're, that's going to be more of a common feature, and we're going to have the the, the we're going to have the beginning or the, the the first frost of the fall are going to be earlier and earlier, compressing the growing cycle. So your growing season, we talk about this all the time, that in the 1970s, the last time we actually had a pretty cold period for agriculture, the average growing season in the United States was 144 days. The average growing season now is 184 days. I haven't done the research that's, that, that tells me how much yield improves having that much more time to grow, but I can tell you it's significant. Well, yeah, yeah. And, and, and it doesn't, I'm not saying better seed or better precision farming. I'm not saying that there are not other things that improve yields. There are, but to have that much more time to grow a crop clearly has had huge implications, not only for yields, but we're, we were never able to grow corn in North Dakota ever. Right. 70s and 80s, it just wasn't done. Mm-hmm. And now it's like, well, of course you plant corn in, in North Dakota. Uh, because we've had, you know, we, we, we had this uh, warm period of natural warming and that expanded the growing cycle and that allowed a lot of ground that would never be used for corn to come in. And, and so, so, so not only are we going to have yields hurt by that well of volatility, but now, you know, we're going to get to a point where they're not going to be able to grow corn in North Dakota anymore as time goes on. Um, Canada, you know, their ability to grow, they're going to have to use shorter duration seed and and if you compress the time to grow something it just means your yields are going to be there. Doesn't mean you can't grow something but two months versus three, you know so that's all part of the cycle and this is a global this is a global issue uh northern hemisphere issue and uh you know a lot of people ask me well, what about the southern hemisphere we don't have as much information about the southern hemisphere as we do about the northern hemisphere in the northern hemisphere we have tremendous tremendous tree ring analysis that was done in the u.s done in asia done all over the place we have tremendous um ice core sampling that was done we have tremendous actual historical records for the northern hemisphere it doesn't mean we don't have some of those things for the southern hemisphere it just means we have a lot more holes in the data um and 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 so i i you one it, it has to understand that we can't make the same kind of strong conclusions in the Southern Hemisphere, other than we know it's going to be more volatile down there. We know they're going to have more issues, but also remember that they're further away from the Antarctica. You know, the growing areas are further away from Antarctica. So the impact to a marginal jet stream that forces this cold air from either the Arctic down or from the Antarctic up, it, it just, it's not as easy mm-hmm. to get that colder air in there doesn't mean it can't like last year we had three frost in brazil coffee for the first time in 26 years um but it just means it's harder so so i would say you know southern hemisphere is absolutely going to be impacted but i don't i can't quantify it to the same degree of precision that i can quantify it for the northern hemisphere other than we've already seen some of the effects that they are having trouble in production in south america some on this weather and that they're not going to be uh you know free and clear other than i think they're going to have a little bit better go of it in the Southern hemisphere than we are in the Northern hemisphere. Okay. So, and the same thing goes for Europe, you know, mm-hmm. all that Russia ground that they're growing and all the Northern ag ground in Europe that they're growing on, you know, NASA did uh, a study of the last two grand solar cycles and went over the temperature differentials um, that occurred uh, in the Northern hemisphere. And the two areas that were most extreme was the Midwest into the Southeast and was the northern tier of Europe were most impacted by uh, you know longer winters, cooling temperatures, and shorter growing cycles. So you know we would have to assume that this grand solar cycle would be of similar kind. Yeah. Um, so so I guess the point is that with with all of this, I know there's a lot of information here, but but that we that this current solar cycle twenty five is verifying another short peak, um, another half peak. Um, and then our forecast from this is that the next solar cycle 26 is going to be really, really small. Like it, we may not even have much of a solar cycle, a, a very, very, you know, if, if people look at information on the Maunder minimum, there was a period where there were no sunspots for an extended period of time. We actually think we might, the period from 2029 to 2030, we might be at that maybe a 10 year period. We may actually see sunspots. Like we think there's a good chance we may not even, or if we do, there's going to be very, very few. That's the next iteration of this cycle as we, but we're not there yet. You know, we're still in this second phase. And so, so that 
gives me great confidence uh, that we are in a grand solar cycle and that the typical impacts to weather volatility, to increasing cold weather extremes, longer winters, and, gro and shorter growing cycles that we're already beginning to see is going to continue and actually going to accelerate. So, okay. So, <clears throat> kind of a couple things I want to point out like this uh, crazy flooding thing that we've seen in, in uh, Yellowstone, for example. Um, made the news. Yellowstone shut down. You can't really get in or out of it right now. There's there helicopters and those kind of things flying around in there. Is that something? Is that like is that kind of weather event? Is that something we can expect to see because of of what we see happening here at the solar cycle minimums and those kind of things? It is because what happens is we the, well, another feature of a grand solar cycle is that you have um, uh, the sun's magnetic field weakens. That's why you have lower sunspots. Okay. And if you have a lower magnetic field, the shield that normally protects the Earth from galactic cosmic rays goes down, and more of these galactic cosmic rays are allowed to enter the Earth's atmosphere. That increases cloud cover. That cloud cover increases precipitation. Um, so that's why you, you, you see areas that have flooding like they've never seen before, or snowpack right. like we've never seen before. So what happened this winter, we had massive, massive snowpack. Um you know, in Yellowstone, in those mountains. I mean, just incredible snowpack. And because the winter ended so late, there was, normally what happens is you have a gradual melt, right? You have a gradual melt and the water comes in and, a, and, a, and, it, and, it, and it can handle it. Well, we had no snowpack melt. And then we had, and then the whole snowpack melted all at once because summer finally arrived. And, and it, that was a feature of a late ending winter, not creating normal uh, a normal snowpack melt at a time that we had a record snowpack. And so you had this entire snowpack melting at the same time. And, and of course, can't handle it. It's too right. much water at one time. And you just have crazy, crazy flooding. It was actually something we predicted we would see. We would see snowpack melt flooding in the Northern Plains and out West because of this late ending winter. And what we believed to be would be a record snowpack. That was one of our forecasts that we talked about. So, okay. All right. So you'd also have talked about the transition from El Nino to La Nina and what that looks like going into this, this fall period, which normally that's not a big deal because it's, you know, it's a normal transition. Things happen. It's just a thing that the, that the earth does just that transitionary period. But because of all the exterior factors that we have going on, this transition is going to be more, more effective than, than usual. Well, as you're right, La Nina and El Nino have been going on for as long as, you know, there's nothing new with that oscillation back and forth of La Nina, for those who don't know, is colder sea surface temperatures of the Central Pacific, and El Nino means warmer sea surface temperature of the Central Pacific. And what condition you have impacts what's called the Walker cycle. It's, it's how the air rises and falls and creates a, a flow of, of, uh, of moisture and airflow in the atmosphere. Um, a grand solar cycle amplifies the effect. So whatever El Nino would do normally, it amplifies it. Whatever an El Nino would do, it amplifies. So a perfect example was two, the last El Nino was 2019. That's when we had one of the, some of the worst flooding in the United States we have ever seen. And we had, we were planting corn in late June, if you recall, because we just, it just endless rain. Well, because El Nino is a wet pattern. Normally, that's good, unless you get that much rain, <laughs> you know, and then it's not good. So, so once again, it took what a normal El Nino would be, and it blew it out. Um, and and so so that's the, the, the so the, the the importance of understanding El Nino La Nina in terms of what they mean is understand the context of this grand solar cycle means that that you you have to take what would normally be the case and assume a whole lot more. So. Right now, one of our big forecasts, very contrarian forecast, is that uh, you know, we had been saying for a long, long time that we, we would have a La Nina that would uh, move into the spring of 22 and then, and then would start to significantly weaken. The majority of the models, the majority of the weather forecasters have been projecting La Nina will continue far out as the eye can see into next year. I mean, that's, that's actually the consensus forecast. We don't like to be consensus in our forecast, as you know, um, not because we just want to be different because we just want to be right. We want to be want to say what the data is saying. 
So are we right? You know, are we getting it right or are we, or are we missing this? Well, we showed in our podcast, weather podcast yesterday, I think it was, that we showed that the Central Pacific is no longer in a La Nina. We're actually, the definition of a La Nina is minus 0.5 degrees colder than normal in the Central Pacific. We're at minus 0.4. So, so we're marginally out of La Nina now, yet everyone's been saying it's going to continue all the way into next year. We actually don't have it in the Central Pacific as, in terms of that definition. Um, so it is weakening. It's weakening significantly. That was part of our forecast. We feel very comfortable that that is exactly on track, that we would see this weakening take place in June, and it would lead to this further weakening into the fall that would lead to an El Nino. Our forecast, our projection is that we'll see an El Nino uh, um, arise or develop uh, and be in place by the first quarter of 2023. But remember, as you transition to it, you start to see the leading effects of El Nino before you even actually get the designation your El Nino, meaning you start to see an El Nino pattern before you actually get the El Nino officially uh, you know, uh, uh, tagged. So this is a very, very different setup now for weather, Casey, than the one we've had for the last couple of years. La Nina tends to be uh, hot, dry for both the U.S. and South America. And boy, have we seen droughts in both countries and they've created havoc with crops. Yeah. But El Nino is exactly opposite. El Nino means cooler, wetter summers. They tend to produce much, much better crops for South America and for North America. So, so, so we're anticipating now that we're, we're, we're looking at a period where we're going to be getting some better crops. We're going to be increasing our ending stocks in grains for a little while. And so that's going to be leaning on prices here for a little bit, um, heading into 23 before we shift gears again and move into uh, kind of a, a Gleisberg cycle that we might talk about a little later. But right now, I think, I think the most impressionable thing I want to emphasize uh, is that these prices that have been generated from an amplified La Nina exacerbated by a, a grand solar cycle minimum pattern, you know, we're kind of ending that cycle, that, that short-term cycle right now. And farmers need to make sure that they're, they're locking in these prices. They have to make sure they're not going to let these prices go away because if we fall back down to you know, $5 corn or $4.5 corn um, and we sit there for a little while, you know, that's going to be a painful experience for those that have it locked in a higher price because, you know, inputs eventually come down Casey, but they're sticky in the beginning, you know, the price comes down and, and, and the inputs delay on their way down. And so, you know, the farmer has to eat a lot of that. I mean, you know, you deal with farm equipment all the time and you deal with farmers all the time and you know how they can get, kind of get caught upside down with these kind of things. So, uh, so that's um, a big change. Now what an Illinois also means, however, it means that we're looking at significant drought potential in Asia. So India, Southeast Asia, China, you know, they tend uh, to look at uh, Australia. They tend to be in a drought mode or a unfavorable production mode. So if you're going to be looking for weather issues, it's going to be in that region. And what is that region? What we also if you think India, you know, they grow a lot of rice, you know, they grow a lot of sugar. Mm -hmm. um, if you think Southeast Asia, they grow a lot of rice. You look, you know, um, uh, you, you West Africa tends to really, really dry out. They grow a lot of cocoa. There's different markets that take it on the chin for production in El Nino that's different from La Nina. So you have to know which markets have bullish weather patterns and which markets have bearish weather patterns. For grains, we're entering a bearish period. Now, now, now we now of course we may get excessive rainfall again, Casey, like we did in 2019, meaning, you know, we may get a, a situation where we get too much rainfall, but it's still better crops, Casey, than hot and dry, right? I mean, even 2019, even though that was, you know, we had excessive rainfall, crops still were pretty good. I mean, it wasn't like a disaster. Okay. Yep. So, so that's what we're heading into. And, um, and that's how it kind of fits in with, uh, with a grand solar cycle minimum at this point. So, so that big shift is underway and, um, uh, you know, and we think it's going to lead to a very good finish to this year's crops here in the U S 
and um, and 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 begin the. You know, we had we had a big big knockdown in grains yesterday. We're beginning to see the market shifting for the first time that maybe supply and demand are getting more into balance based upon the outlook for production and maybe some demand destruction we're starting to see. So just be careful out there if you're in the, if you're a farmer, you know, don't let these prices you know slip too far without doing something. So. Okay. All right. <clears throat> so like with the winter cycles, like you've been talking about here, we got these, these shorter, more intense winters and these shorter compressed, uh, more intense summers. Um, with the El Nino moving into this part, do you, are you expecting to see a lot more like 1970s type winters where there's lots of snow, lots of colder days, you know, um, snowpack in the mountains, those kind of things where there's just way more longer prolonged winters that are going to be uh, hard to get into the field and start? Well, there's two cycles at work about what produce uh, colder, longer winters and what produce much more snowfall. Um, grand solar cycles clearly do that because we talked about how they increase cloud cover, increases the moisture, those bombogenesis storms, those winter hurricanes that we get. Um, it creates more of those kinds of, of um, atmospheric, you know, extreme rain events. The other cycle is what the Atlantic Ocean is doing. It's called the AMO or the Atlantic Multidecadal Oscillation. Um, it follows a 40-year cycle. And what it means is for 40 years, it warms up and for 40 years, it cools down and 40 years, it warms up. And it, it's a function of whether you get upwelling or downwelling in the Atlantic Ocean. And, and what the two things that impact the currents of our oceans is the sun and the moon, how they interact with each other and how they interact with the earth. Where are they located? What's the orientation? What's your activity? Um, and that's what determines whether you're going to get upwelling or downwelling upwelling brings cold era cold sea surface temperatures up downwelling brings warm we have been in a warm amo uh you know for for the last 40 years i mean it's been warming one important concept sea surface temperatures determine the temperature above it meaning if you have cold oceans the air is cold if you have warm oceans the air is warm it's it's a simple thermodynamic process um and so the reason that we've been in a generally uh, more favorable warming pattern and we've been able to grow, as we said, you know, production under a longer growing cycle and we've been able to grow corn in North Dakota, it's because we've had a warm, a warming Atlantic Ocean for the last 40 years. And that's warmed the air. It's allowed for more favorable weather conditions. Don't let anyone tell you that warming is bad for agriculture. It's phenomenal. It's the cold temperature. It's the reduction of the growing cycle that hurts the ability to produce food. We would never, I don't know why, why anyone would wish a cooling planet because history is always fraught with issues with growing food. So there's a, that 40 year cycle is uh, kicked in uh, as of the end of 2020. So from 2020, we were anticipating or beginning to, we were, we're, we're forecasting that we would begin a 40 year cooling cycle for the AMO. And by that very nature, that should also begin a process of cooling the Northern Hemisphere, especially Europe and especially the United States. The 1970s was not a grand solar cycle minimum, Casey. It was a cold AMO regime. Okay. Now, if you, have a, if you have a cold AMO, and then the other thing is the PDO, which is the Pacific Decadal Oscillation, which is the sea surface temperatures of the Pacific. If they're both cold at the same time, you have double, double cold. Both are pumping cold air on both sides. Um, that was the condition we had in the 1970s. From 1965 to 1980, we had a cold AMO. We had a cold PDO. No grand solar. And we had crazy, crazy cold. Crazy, crazy snow. Very difficult. We said the growing season was 144 days. Very difficult to grow food during that period of time in the Northern Hemisphere. Uh, the PDO has already been cold. It's, uh, the PDO is on a different uh, it's on a, a, a little bit of a different cycle. It's on a 50-year cycle. So they're a little bit offset a little bit. It's already been cold. but in order, and, and that has taken, that's why if you look at the overall temperatures as measured by the satellite, temperatures have been flat for the last 20 years. And the main reason is the warm AMO has been counteracted by the cold PDO, and that's kept the air 
about flat, meaning we haven't been warming, we haven't been cooling, we've been kind of keeping our temperatures kind of stagnant for the last 20 years. But now, if we're correct, Casey, and the AMO starts to cool, we now are going to see this, you know, the, the, the overall long-term temperature regime start to shrink. So the, the question is, of course, is it happening? The answer is yes, it's happening. When we did the research, we found that two years after the cycle turns, you really begin to see the AMO start to nosedive. We made a comment in our weather podcast yesterday about how cold the Atlantic Ocean is this year relative to last year and relative to what we've seen you know, over the last 10 years. And it's a significant cooling um, that we've been seeing. And this is the beginning of this you know, long-term cycle heading down. And typically it takes about 15 years for the AMO to reach its low point. It's absolute rock bottom low. So we're looking at something like mid 2030s to late 2000s where the AMO is going to reach rock bottom cold. And that's where you're going to have your maximum. That's at a time, by the way, we've talked about, we might have no sunspots in the, in the 2030s. That would be a point where we could see the maximum effect of cold, long winters, short growing cycles. You know, I would be most worried about that decade, that 2030 to 2040 for the maximum uh, effect of a grand solar cycle meshed with a cold sea surface temperature cycle of the PDO and the AMO being in place simultaneously. We have not had a cold sea surface temperature cycle and an, uh, a grand solar cycle in synchronicity since 1600. That's the last time we had these two cycles together like this. So it's been a long, long time. And that was the Mulder minimum, right? That led into the Maunder minimum. Right. That led into the Maunder minimum, uh, which was a pretty unpleasant time. Now, you know, I'm never going to say that every, you know, that any two times are going to be exactly the same, but we would anticipate this to be um, much worse than the Dalton minimum, which did not have the sea surface temperature cycle on your side. You know, the Dalton was pretty severe because that was the last grand solar we had in the early 1800s, but we didn't have the sea surface temperatures on our side in terms of being cold. So in the 70s, we just had the sea surface temperature cycle and it was still pretty unfavorable case. It was really unfavorable. But now we got them together. So that's, you know, and, I, and, and none of this is meant to be fear-mongering. Uh, you know, I, I want to think that I'm somehow, you know, Debbie Downer. I'm, I'm, I'm a negative person. I am just trying to explain what we see coming. Because whether we like it or not, if I'm right about the data and we're right about these cycles and it's coming, it's coming whether we like it or not. So I always believe living down here in South Florida, I'd much rather know a category five hurricane is coming my way in advance. So I can take, may, take, I can take steps and prepare myself. I'd rather know that than just say, well, I don't really care. I'm just going to you know, go by the seat of my pants. I would prefer that, you know, that preparation is mother of skill that I would prefer my customers, my ad producers, those that are looking ahead saying, okay, this is coming. What do I need to do to prepare for it so I can get through it and be fine. And that's really, this is really a positive message of accepting what is coming and what do we do about it? So, all right. So last year at the Moving Iron Summit, in your speech, you were talking about, I think it was the North Atlantic Current and how it was slowing down, and that that current is what drags up, um, basically tropical warm tropical water up to, um, uh, you know, England and, and the the eastern or the western edge of of Europe. So they get that. If they did, it would just be you know another ice block someplace up in the north. It's starting to slow down, and you were talking about how that was generating more ice flow in that area. Talk about that a little bit. Um, we talked about the sun and the moon impact on, on upwelling and downwelling, but it also impacts the ocean current. So this is current that spirals around the whole ocean, and it flows. We, it, we It's best known here in the United States as the Gulf Stream. Right, the Gulf Stream comes right up. It's part of that river of current that takes the warm tropical sea water and it pushes it up into the cold and equilibrates the whole system. It's known that when we get into these uh, grand solar cycle minimum periods, that you get a slowing down. And the uh, the um, uh, Woods Hole Institute, one of the top oceanographic research institutes in the world measures all this stuff and they saw and have determined that the Gulf Stream has slowed 15%. Its current is 15% slower 
than it was 10 years ago. So we're seeing that happen, which means that less warm is moving up to the north, and that has the impact of cooling the Atlantic Ocean. The other thing that it does, and I think this is something we might, I'm trying to remember if I talked about it on your, uh, at your conference or not, but we've mentioned it before, that there's this um, Beaufort gyre that's sitting up there uh, above Greenland that traps all this fresh water and that melts from the glaciers off the Arctic. And when yeah, the this. yeah, you talked about this. Yeah. So when, when we have a normal current, it keeps the flow this way and it, and it traps this cold, fresh water from getting out. But when you slow it down, it reverses the flow and it then dumps all this cold, fresh water into the Northern Atlantic, which then of course feeds itself in to cold, cooling the Atlantic. And it further slows down the Gulf stream. Um, the Woods Hole Institute also noted that they saw that this, this current was slowing down considerably in the Beaufort Gyre and that they're, they're believing that we're going to see a reversion or a reversal. They call it a, the great salinity event. If you just do a search in your computer and go great salinity event, you, it'll pop up how we had this significant reduction in salinity from 1965 into the late 1970s. Um, because all this fresh water is desalinating, you know, it's it's creating less uh, salt concentration in the ocean, which is a function of this. And so um, that's all part of this sea surface temperature cycle that we're talking about in the Atlantic, the AMO cooling. It's all part of the same trigger mechanism that leads to these colder winters. And by the way, another interesting feature, which is a good thing, the, the hurricane season or the hurricane activity Atlantic goes way down during a cold ammo because hurricanes are fed by warm rising air and water. And if you cool it down, then you have less energy, you have less uh, you know, for energy for the, for the storm to, uh, to fire up. And so you tend to see a dramatic lowering of hurricane activity during periods of, of, of a colder Atlantic ocean and, and, and a, uh, and a slowing down of this uh, of this Gulf Stream current. So it's it's so that's you know for, at least from where I live that that's a really good thing. You know right. I might have to worry less about hurricanes over the next twenty years than I had the last twenty years. So it's just an interesting feature uh, about uh, you know how hurricanes uh, uh, activity uh, can ebb and flow based upon these cycles that we're talking about. So okay, so the, the hurricane um, so that's going to go down. It's going to obviously maybe the this the uh, the monsoonal effects in in the uh, Asia or someplace like that do they, do they go up and with that when that happens? Yes, um, just just like you know we talked about how this current in the ocean equilibrates. Earth is this massive equilibrating. I call it sentient being. I don't know what else you want to call it, but it it everything is always trying to equilibrate. And if there's an excess here, it's gonna you know, it's going to offset it here. It's, that's what the earth does. Um, and so if, if you, so just to give an example, last year we had a very, very active hurricanes, like extremely active because um, the ammo was still warm last year. Uh, and we had La Nina, which is also, an, it, it helps reduce wind shear in the Caribbean, which then allows the storms to, to, to come in unencumbered. But we had the, the, most, the quietest, Pacific typhoon season on record since we've been keeping records. Like we had very, very low activity. Now, if we shift gears, Casey, and we start getting to a, a very, very low, then the, then the Pacific ocean fires up. It is okay. We're not getting, we're not getting a lot of juice over here, but we, we, what, what hurricanes are is it's a way for the atmosphere to kind of blow off its energy to kind of, you know, let some steam out. And if you don't let this, it has to do it. It's, it's part of the system of how the thermodynamic system of the earth operates. If it doesn't do it in the Atlantic, it has to do it in the Pacific. So we would expect the Pacific to really get active and fire up. And the Asia have all kinds of problems with typhoon activity. Whereas the Atlantic comes down and has, has uh, a much more, um, you know, much calmer, quieter period of time. So you're correct. What's good for us is not good for Asia. So. Gotcha. Okay. All right. So <clears throat> yesterday, after we finished up our podcast yesterday, and the, when we were talking about markets, you were talking about we were off off the off the air here. We were talking, and you brought up the Gleisberg cycle, and I am like this much familiar with 
the Glassberg cycle, but basically it's a, an interplanetary alignment that, you know, the, the gravitational forces of all the planets kind of all come together at one time and, and cause this significant weather pattern on earth. So talk about that a little bit. So the 11 year solar cycle is created when the magnetic fields of the sun are lopsided on either the Northern hemisphere or the Southern hemisphere that increases the magnetic field strength produces sunspots. That's how you get your, your peak. But so, so we have one 11 year solar cycle. That's a Northern hemisphere feature. You have another 11 year solar cycle. That's the Southern hemisphere feature. Those two solar cycles are 22 years in duration. That's 11 and 11. That's called the hail cycle. 22 years is a full turn of a northern and southern hemisphere 11-year solar cycle window. Four hail cycles, 88 years, is considered a completion of an entire solar cycle. Okay. Um, Dr. Gleisberg, who researched this, found that after 88 years, the sun literally starts over again and, and starts a brand new cycle and the culmination of the end of a four year or of a four uh, hill cycles or 88 years, as you said, leads to this culmination of effects with how the sun interacts with the earth, interacts with the moon, interacts with the planetary arrangements at that 88 year cycle. Um, and it just so happens that for the Midwest, it means that you typically get a one in 100 year drought when you get a completion of an entire 88 year solar cycle called the Gleisberg cycle. Um, the last time that cycle came into play was 1934, 1935. And we know that was the Dust Bowl, which was a, to this day, clearly the worst drought the U.S. has had in the last hundred years. I mean, it's no, I don't think there's any doubt about it, that that was clearly a, an event that we have not seen since, although we've had droughts since we've not had that kind of a situation. Um, the, the time prior to that uh, was uh, 1844, 1845. Um, and if you look at records, it was the worst drought of that 100 year period. You look at 19, 1755, um, they actually had to try to sell bonds uh, uh, to try to raise money because the agricultural production was impacted so badly by the 1755 drought. That was the one in 100 drought of that period of time. So that window comes up in 2024 and 2025. It, tend to be a, it tends to be a two-year cycle, meaning you have a, actually a two-year drought um, that culminates. And um, uh, so that's something that you, know, you only get one shot at something like that in 100 years because it's an 88-year cycle pretty much, you know, give or take. So that is in front of us. So I think the point I'm trying to make with this um, is that while we are feeling that we have a period of bearish pricing coming up for grains uh, because of the El Nino coming and some better weather and, and you know, and, and we're going to have to work off some of this high price, some of these high prices we've seen, there, livestock producers are going to get an incredible opportunity to buy cheaper feed ahead of this Gleisberg cycle drought risk meaning that you're not going to want to go into 2024-25 as a livestock producer and not have your feed hedged or, or, or your physical needs purchased. You, you, don't, you do not want to do that. You want to make sure you, you got it and so you're okay that we get $10, $15 corn, you're good. Um, conversely, you know, if you're a producer, and this was a recommendation, Casey, as you know, we made in 2020 where we told our producers – store as much cash grain in the bin as you can and only sell what you have to because we're going into a protracted two-year, we call it a phase transition higher in prices, which is exactly what has happened. And anybody that followed that simple strategy has done extremely well, you know, keeping their grain in the bin and waiting for the, you know, waiting for the prices to uh, to rise further. That's going to be a strategy we're, we're going to be recommending next summer when we think we're at that point where we've factored in another big crop, you know, bigger ending stocks ahead of this 24, 25 cycle. Um, you know, we're going to be talking about and thinking about recommending that same strategy so that you don't get caught. Once again, like a lot of farmers, they sold so much $4 corn 
thinking they were doing a good thing and then got run over and, 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 and missed out on really, really, you know, bringing a lot of money home to the farm. And that's what, I, that's the whole point of this, this weather algorithm that we, and these weather cycles and these statistics that we follow is it allows you to, to look ahead and prepare in your mind, your strategy of what you need to be thinking about and doing. And yeah, nobody wants a one to 100 drought. It's going to be awful. It's going to be terrible. It's going to be, you know, not something anyone wants to go through, but if you are understanding that that risk is there, you can take action to mitigate it for you on the farm. And that's really, really the whole point of this is preparing for what is to come, not for what we want to happen, but what is actually going to happen. So, so are you talking something like worse than the 2012 drought uh, in, in Iowa and Illinois and Indiana, something like that, more, more protracted situation where there's just no planning, nothing to plan into, and obviously nothing to, to grow into. Is that because it's worse? I wouldn't say that the individual year would be worse, but because it's a two year problem, meaning it's a two years in a row right. like that, it's worse. Okay. So, like in 2012, it was awful, but the next year was much better. And then, you know, we kind of came out of it. Um, the 1988 drought, which was extremely bad, was one year. And next year, we came right out of it. This is going to be one of those droughts. And then it's going to, it's going to have a sec, it's going to, it's going to happen again. And that second round is is what really, really makes it so much worse because you don't have that ability to rebound to get yourself back on track to get that production going again. And and now, you know, you're really in in you know upside down in, in terms of how do we make this work. That's so I, I would say that the actual two that let's say 2024 year probably going to be similar, but it's the two year effect that makes it worse. So you're going to have a 2012 or a 1988 back to back, two, back to back, two years in a row. That's yeah. correct. That's that's not good news, Sean. All right, but like you said, gives you an opportunity to uh, to plan for that, and if you plan accordingly, then you should come out okay. All right. Anything else here, Sean? You want people to be aware of? Um, I, I would just some of the other, other things that we uh, um, I've talked about before on your show that we uh, uh, want people to be alerted to is that there does tend to be an increase in volcanic activity that tends to uh, develop as the grand solar cycle minimum further along. And for those who don't know, volcanic eruptions push sulfur dioxide in the atmosphere, these, these aerosols in the atmosphere. And they are, they're like mirrors and they just block all the sun from coming in. <laughs> so, um, that's something that is a is a every single grand solar cycle minimum we have had. Casey has had at least one of these major, major, um, you know, grand uh, uh, volcanic eruptions that has pushed this sulfur dioxide in the atmosphere and created a worsening of the cold weather extremes that we've been talking about and weather extremes that we've talked about. They tend to occur at the troughs of the eleven-year solar cycles, Casey. So um, that's something that I don't think it's going to be right here right now, but it's something that we think is going to be coming later on in the decade that would be, um, think of Tonga. When Tonga went off, that actually was a volcanic eruption that was big enough to impact the weather, meaning they, they measure this by the volcanic explosivity index. VEI6 or higher are what's needed to really impact the weather. Tonga was a VEI-6, but it was an underwater volcano. Because of that, it didn't, oh, force, it, it, it didn't allow the sulfur dioxide to go in the atmosphere to, in the quantities that it would have if it was an above ground, if it was above the ocean. So we really dodged a bullet with that one, but it was a warning sign that that, uh, that is something we're going to see come. And the next time, we probably won't have an underwater volcano. It'll be an above ground, and then that will do have much greater impact. So Mount Tambora was the last one of these that went off during the Dalton minimum in 1815. And that created the year without a summer. Uh, we had frost in Iowa in July documented that during that summer of that year. Needless to say, growing crops was a little difficult um, in the summer of 1815. So, so these are the things that, you know, they need to be aware of. Um, if you see anyone on the TV or anyone say that we just had a VEI-6 volcanic eruption take place, you need to understand what that means and you need to quickly take action 
um, to mitigate that on the farm. So um, I would say the only other thing, Casey, that I would like to mention, and we've talked about this before, when food gets short, we know it tends to create uh, unrest in the world. It tends to create wars. Most of the wars that have been fought over the many, many thousands of years of human history have been fought around the lack of food or who has it and who doesn't have it. Um, and we're already starting to see some of that already, Casey. We're starting to see unrest and wars being fought over food already. And I, and I think that's going to be an escalating feature that would be another bullish element to kind of breaking down this just-in-time inventory ag system that we've been that we've been uh, under for the last 20 years and creating more of a stockpiling strategy where, where countries are going to say, you know what, I don't trust you. I don't trust you and I don't trust you to give me the food when I want it. So I'm just going to buy when I, what I can and stockpile it because I need to have a reserve in case you decide you don't want to sell me uh, wheat today. You know, yeah. we're already starting to see this with the Ukraine-Russian altercation, how quickly things could de-escalate into something more sinister. So just those, that's another part of a grand solar cycle minimum phase is that you tend to get this breakdown of trade, these, these increases in un, un regional rest and sometimes global wars. I'm going to share my screen real quick because I, I was, I was Googling this while you were, uh, while you were talking and this kind of this graphic, I think lays out a pretty good picture here. Um, all right. You see my, my uh, screen, Sean. Up I here. see it. Yep. So this kind of breaks down a couple four different volcanic eruptions that are pretty famous throughout history. And you got Mount Vesuvius here and then you got uh, Krakatoa and then you got Mount St. Helens. And they're, they're talking about the amount of material ejected during that time frame. And you can see what you're talking about with Mount Tambora right here in 1815. That was just the, the amount of, of sulfur dioxide in the atmosphere was uh, massive. And it sits in the atmosphere, Casey, for over two years before it starts to dissipate. Yeah. So it, it's a, it's a two year effect of blocking the sun uh, and, you know, and, and, and creating a significant acceleration of, of colder temperatures. So yeah. this is, uh, I just Googled this. Yeah. Jane Austen world. So check it out. It's anyway. a, that's, a, that's a great, great chart of the difference between. So, so like Tambor was a, was a VEI seven yeah. uh, Mount St. Helens was a VEI four. Krakatoa was a VEI five. You can see how exponentially different the effluent is in the atmosphere based upon their designation of the volcanic explosivity index. It's just, it's just incredible, incredible. It's crazy, but <coughs> that's a, that's a great point because if you go back and look throughout time, I mean, you, you can see where these volcanic eruptions have happened and, and what you see and, and how they've affected everything. So it'll be a, yeah, that's something to pay attention to. So, I guess uh, yeah, a lot of stuff here, Sean. So, folks, if folks want to reach out to you and, and get more information, or, or get kind of look at some of the resources that you that you look at to kind of get this stuff going, Sean. What's the best way for them to do that? Um, our website is Hackett H A C K E T T Advisors .com. I think we have some of our original podcasts that we did on some of this stuff um, um, that kind of uh, lays out some of the foundational work. Um, we have some white papers, reports, go over how we do this, why we do it, how we make our forecast to see, you know, if this kind of information um, might be of value to you, especially if you're in the ag space in any shape, way, or form. Um, you know, this, this, this is, we think this next, you know, 10 to 15, 20 years is going to be extremely important to get to, to position correctly for this new weather pattern regime we're in. And I think, um, uh, those that um, are open to something very different. I mean, this is not your uh, your coffee table talk now, and this is not something that's mainstream thinking, but it is something that we feel is important to get out there and to have your listeners consider how they might use it to alter how they go about running their businesses. So okay. a lot of stuff to think about here, man. There's a lot of factors that are moving all in the same direction here that are going to collide at the same time and, and, cause a very unique uh, time in history that quite frankly uh, no one's seen for 400 years. So it'll be interesting. Well, just, well, just think of it this way, Casey, right? I mean, the 1930s was an incredible event, right? With the Dust Bowl. 
uh, the 1970s was an incredible event with the sea surface temperatures going cold. Um, it, you know, the Dalton minimum was an incredible event, the last grand solar cycle minimum that we had. We have the grand solar cycle, we have the cold sea surface temperature, and now the Gleisberg cycle is also in alignment. I mean, so so you 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 just as you said, you have this cluster, this culmination, this this meeting of all these cycles that are culminating at this similar time. It's you just don't get one of these very often. We just happen to be alive um, at one of these moments where you where this is actually in place, and it's just uh, uh, it, it, it's so it, it's just a really 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 as you said, Casey, unique moment in time for climate, for weather, for agriculture. And, and I can't impress upon anyone how, look, do your own research, check out a lot of this stuff, Google like you did, Casey, talk about the, look, look at Grand Solar Cycle, the year without the summer, Mount Tambora, uh, sea surface, you, know, you get yourself comfortable and confident in some of the stuff that may seem really out, out of left field right now to you if you if you're not if you've never been exposed to this because you really really need to get comfortable and, and and be positioning for these kinds of weather that we've just not seen before if you're going to thrive in the ag space and uh obviously uh we'd love to help if we can or certainly steer you in the right direction if we can but yeah it's it's really a, a wild wild time to be uh to be alive right now with all that's going on without a doubt Yep. And, you know, just to back Sean up on this, you know, and I, I'm sitting here as he's talking about this stuff because this stuff is new to me. I can tell you that there's nothing I've heard him talk about it and we've talked about it several times, but I still got to go back and because, and, again, it's stuff you've never heard of. And, you know, I'm like, and then I got to sit there and think about it and go back and look. I Googled um, Atlantic Current. Right, and brought up, and there's uh, the first five articles were about how the the North Atlantic Current is the weakest it's been in the in the past thousand years, you know, and, and those kind of things. So this stuff is there's plenty of data out here to, to to go in and 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 go back and fact check this stuff and really see just what it's looking at. So Sean, I think this is a great topic. I love doing this with you, man, and I uh, appreciate you being on the podcast, talking about the markets, talking about this kind of stuff. Well, I appreciate you, you know. Uh having this forum to have this discussion on something like this. Uh, I think it's an important discussion and for, and, and, and hopefully, um, you know, it can help a lot of people maybe think a little differently about what impacts weather, what is impacting weather and what that looks like going forward. I really appreciate the opportunity. So. Okay. Okay. Well, I am Casey Seymour with moving iron podcast. Make sure you check me out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. This week, find the list editions of the moving iron podcast. You can also go to uh, LinkedIn and you'll find me at Moving Iron Podcast and check out the Moving Iron Podcast YouTube channel where you to see the video version of this and uh, of this podcast. So uh, if you need more information about the Moving Iron Podcast, go to movingironlloc.com and you can get all the information you need there. Uh, the Moving Iron Summit, which Sean is going to speak at here, this will be a good, a good time to kind of do the same presentation, but more in depth. Uh, if you're interested in seeing that, go to movingironlloc.com and check out the Moving Iron Summit page. That's September 6th, 7th, and 8th in Nashville, Tennessee. All the information is there to get signed up. But if you need more information about that, send me an email at movingironpodcast at movingironpodcast.com, and I'll make sure to get back to you as soon as I can. So with that, I'm Casey Seymour. And I have one more. We'll throw one thing in there. My friend Alex is over in Ukraine, uh, passed on humanitarian aid. If you're interested in helping Alex, check the show notes. There's a link for his GoFundMe page there, or just go to gofundme.com and search Help Alex Transport Humanitarian Aid from Poland to Ukraine, and you'll find it there as well. So interested in helping Alex, uh, check that out. So with that, I'm Casey Seymour with Sean Hackett. Let's go inspire folks. Out. Axon Tire is going to have more tips, tricks, and client advice throughout the year and in September at the Moving Iron Summit in Nashville. If you're looking to sign up for the event, please head over to movingironllc.com. We hope to see you there. Valley Transportation has been hauling ag and construction equipment across the country for the past 33 years. Call Parker at 800-657-4910 or go to valleytransitinc.com for all of your trucking needs. At Valley Transportation, our goal is to help you reach yours. And no matter how you buy ag equipment from a dealer, auction, or a private party, AgDirect can help you finance it. You can even apply online at agdirect.com. Learn more about your financing options at agdirect.com. Moving higher.
in the 21st century.